Hello and welcome to episode 155 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. Rod Murray back at the controls and on best behaviour, frankly, after Karen Harding's excellent performance as host of last week's show. Big thank you to Karen and Women in Golf's Emma Ballard for their help in producing that special AIG Women's Open preview. It was a terrific week at Walton Heath, not only on the course, but with some of the innovative efforts to attract new fans to the game. All reports from on the ground suggest the RNA did a good job of making the tournament more appealing to a broader range of people. And away from the spotlight of the top men and women professionals, they're employing the same creative thinking at the grassroots. Joining us in just a moment to discuss the Golfit project in Glasgow is Bunkered Magazine Deputy Editor Michael McEwen, whose excellent piece on the facility last week is linked in the show notes. Now, there's no Jimmy Emanuel this week. He's been struck down with some form of illness in the Northern Territory. However, we do have in studio Good Good's most well-travelled member, Adrian Logue. Logue, we've been a bit distracted the last year and a half by professional golf, like everybody else, but this is going right back into the Good Good wheelhouse. This it week. is. Yeah, we're playing the hits now, Rod. This is... This is what we're all about, isn't it? If this were a concert, this is what the fans would be screaming for. <laughs> That's right. We don't want the new stuff. Give us the other thing. Yeah, <laughs> Exactly. So this is going to be really good, so uh, looking forward to it. Uh, today's special guest, as I mentioned, Michael Munkett. Michael McEwen is Bunkett Magazine's deputy editor, host of their weekly podcast, which is really good and you should listen to it. He recently attended the opening, or I think it was a pre-opening, uh, of this intriguing new RNA facility in Glasgow called Golf at Michael. Welcome. This topic is going to plug into lots of others, I think, to do with the game. But for those not familiar, can you start by giving us a thumbnail sketch of what, pardon me, what golf it is? Yeah, hi guys, thanks for having me back. Always a pleasure to to catch up with you, gents. So yeah, golf it, a really exciting new project that has replaced one of the council courses in Glasgow city centre. So regular followers of, of my ramblings on social media will be aware that I got quite upset when Glasgow City Council announced a few years ago that it planned to close five of its six facilities, its golf courses. There's a number of reasons why I was annoyed by that, not least the fact that the, the city had profited rather handsomely from the Commonwealth Games just in 2014, which might just be the biggest white elephant of all <laughs> mm-hmm. the Commonwealth Games. I know I'm speaking to a, a, a very knowledgeable community on this one as well, but yeah, that was disappointing to see these facilities go because uh, I'm a huge believer in the grassroots of the game. Municipal courses was how I got my start in golf. I, I played at a council-run putting green in the Orkney Islands, way up in the north of Scotland when I was little. Then when I started to take the proper full swings, it was a council-run course in Glasgow. So it disturbed me greatly that these places were threatened because they're a hugely critical part of the golf pathway. The ecosystem is, I think, is the the buzzword that we're meant to use these days. So it was disappointing to see that this golf course was one of them to go. Letham Hill, very popular, well-used 18-hole golf course. But the council had obviously no use for it. It claimed it wasn't able to financially support it. And fortunately, the RNA stepped in with... uh, an offer to buy the land and what they did was reduce the golf course from 18 holes to nine which in the face of it doesn't sound great but nine hole golf's very important as we know and has a real good place in the game but on top of that they, they built out this phenomenal facility that includes a two-tier driving range it includes practice putting greens it includes adventure golf it includes a, a variation on pitch and putt that they're calling park golf it has pop-up street food vendors it's bright it's colorful it's engaging the people that work there wear hoodies and t-shirts. It's everything that golf, traditional golf, particularly RNA golf, is not. It is the ultimate place to either start people playing golf, 
I'm planning on taking my five-year-old daughter there who's never played any form of the game before because the adventure golf, she loves how colourful it is. Then, you know, you can... So you can start off little ones there. You can improve your skills in the range. You can work on your game on the nine-hole course. It is the complete package right at the heart of a community. And it's a community that needs this type of facility, you know, where it's based in your Glasgow city centre. It's a community crying out for this type of facility. So... I was hugely encouraged when I heard what RNA wanted to do. I was hugely impressed by the scale and ambition of the plans. But seeing the plans and having the ambitions, one thing to realise it is quite another. So I went along with huge hopes, but kind of expecting to be a little bit disappointed, if you know what I mean. Still think it was great, uh-huh. but mm, they didn't quite hit the mark on that bit. Instead, they've absolutely nailed it. I've been one of the biggest critics of the RNA over the last 20 years or so for various reasons but under Martin Slumber's leadership they're they're going in the right direction and this is another key part of that yeah there's a bunch of stuff in that Mark and one of the first ones I want to come to is this notion that this facility is everything that isn't golf that's extraordinarily bold for not just a, an administrative body, a governing body, but for the RNA, the very heart of the game, to embark on. That's a massive ticket, feels like to me. And even if they hadn't got it right, the the courage to do it differently speaks volumes. I think Slumbers, I wrote a column this week saying, I think Slumbers is the most important administrator in the game. And I think Slumbo. Slumbo, as Luke likes to call him. Uh, <laughs> am I right about that? Or is, is, he, is it a smokescreen? Is he conning us? Or are they genuine? It feels like genuine innovation on their part. This he is all in on this. He he means it with sincerity. He wouldn't be doing this if he didn't believe in it. And the thing to remember about Martin Slumbers is the he's the, the background that he comes from. I mean, he worked in the the banking and financial sector. That's where he built his career. This is a guy that you know by by nature and by profession is probably quite risk averse and assesses everything before making decisions in the most thorough forensic way possible. But when he does go in, he goes all in. He's identified the, the need for two things in the, the eight years that he's been at the RNA. The first was the need for the RNA to transform itself, which he set aside five years to do. So between 2015 and 2020, the organisation itself underwent a lot of changes. We saw some of those realised immediately with the rebranding of the Open Championship in 2015, which he had a little bit of a hand in because it was just before his time. But a lot of the stuff has gone on behind the scenes in terms of personnel and putting the right teams and management structures in place to create an organisation that is touching all the key areas that it needs to. Put it this way, there's not as many blazers cutting about St Andrews as there used to be. But the second thing he identified was the need to grow the game and make healthier routes at the grassroots. And he said that in 2020, unless we adapt, the game is not going to thrive for the next generation. Golf it is the the first part of realising that statement. Yeah, it feels like a real blueprint. Some of the stuff that Michael's talking about there, Logue, is I think the sort of stuff that you might think about, that corporate culture structure. We've seen the PGA Tour take the wrong step at every turn in this whole thing with Liv. They've picked the wrong path mm-hmm. every time, and it's ended up being disastrous if you think that the you know what what's coming with the framework. How important is it for sort of slumbers to be... Am I, am I right? Is the leadership the really important thing here with what they're doing? And Michael's, I think Michael's right. This is a legitimate move from the RNA. Hmm. What's the importance of that and that leadership from the top? Yeah, and when you get it wrong, uh, you'll, I always like to think, you know, the fish 
the the fish rots from the head down, and uh, it, it just you know leadership is important in these situations, and it it speaks to the different motivations of those two organisations. Really, like one is um, very much uh, reactive to the demands of their membership. Mm-hmm. Um, that that's the PGA Tour, um, and also, and I, I think that has shown in the detriment of the product and. Uh, not really truly understanding who their stakeholders And that's not just with really we, We've been on about this for the five full, or six years yeah. on this, but this has been a 15, 20-year process. The full breadth of the yep. responsibility the PGA Tour should encompass uh, what the product looks like for its viewers and uh, the spectators that come to the tournaments. And, you know, by all accounts, they put on a pretty good show for spectators at the tournaments, but, you know, attendances aren't always fantastic. And the TV product, which is where they really make their money, is uh, just atrocious. And you know, we've, we've talked about that ad nauseum. Maybe if it gets down to the last nine holes, you've start to got my interest. Um, but everything before that is just just some banal, boring, like not a good advertisement for golf. Um, and yeah, I think all of that has incrementally gotten worse over the last twenty years or so because of the way the PGA tours. Uh, incentivized and and who they feel like they've got to mm. answer to. The RNA, on the other hand, and I always say this about governing bodies in in this podcast. I think people don't, you know, there's that glib sort of dismissal of the RNA and the USGA as amateurs, and and it always comes around when the Opens come. Boy, what what a, a rules snafu! What a bunch of nonsense that is! Like they're actually the, the people who make the rules. Yeah. And it's like deep in their DNA that they care about golfers. Their passion is golfers and uh, clubs that, you know, create the next generation of golfers. And it's, you know, the 99.999% of us that play golf that the RNA and the USGA uh, accommodate. Um, And, you know, they make a lot of money out of a couple of professional events, the RNA and the USGA out of their Opens, but they invest that money straight back in the game. In other areas too, not just back into the Opens themselves, but into all these other areas like what yeah. we're talking about with. And this isn't like an advertisement. Like they, you know, they try things that don't always come off. Um, we see that with, and, and it's, that's not just with the RNA and the USGA, with national governing bodies as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I think national governing bodies around the world can be notoriously bad for misspending the funds that the, that their golfers pay them. Um, but you know they try different things. Uh, but fundamentally, administrators of the of the game for the ninety nine percent of us are motivated by making the game better for the ninety nine percent of us. Yeah. And and this is a great example yeah, of that. Indeed. We'll move on from my man crush on Martin Slumbers in a moment, Michael. But I remember he did a terrific interview with John Hogan on Golf Australia magazine's thing about golf podcast uh, about two years ago now. And the sense that I got, and you've probably been closer to him than most of us at various times, Michael, was that. At the core of it, the thing about Slummers is he's actually a golfer. He gets it at a level of someone who who plays the game in that way. Jay Monaghan's also a golfer, but his entire golf history has been kind of wrapped up with the PGA Tour and all that sort of stuff. How important do you think that is, Michael, that, that Martin comes from a place of – and I think he even had said in that podcast he occasionally still goes out with the persimmons and the blades for a bit of sport. Yeah, I love that. I mean, it, it means that he, he approaches the decisions that he has to make, some of them extremely difficult, some of them with wide-ranging consequences. He It means he approaches all of them with empathy for a golfer. You know, he understands what 
the the average golfer's concerns are and where the pitfalls and the drawbacks may be, which it, help, it helps to inform the decisions that he has to make. I, I don't think it's absolutely essential that he is, but it certainly does help. And I, I think that Logue's just hit on something that is so true. You know, it really grinds my gears when you hear certain players complain about rules and so on, saying that we're governed by amateurs. Yeah, you are. You're governed by amateur golfers, but they are professional administrators. That's what they're there to do. Rulings and looking after the rules of the game and the best interests of the game, frankly, shouldn't be left to the best one zero point zero one percent of those who have ever picked up a golf club. The idea of leaving... Let's say, for example, Phil Mickelson in charge of the best interests of the game gives me sleepless nights. So I I rest easy knowing that we have somebody like Martin Slumbers at the helm of the game. I think Mike Quan will come good too, but I just think that he hasn't quite figured out what's best for his organisation because he's so new in that role. He's come from a place of corporate governance with the LPGA. Yeah. I think he's he's going to come good in time, but I think the the more that he can lean into Martin, I think the better it will be for him, the USGA and golf in the States. Yeah, indeed. You always hear that, oh, you know, why are we governed by amateurs? Always professionals, when they're playing at the opening, they get a ruling they don't like. Yeah. And they, they just throw it's, away lines. Just such self-interest is the only motivation. The, the stupidest thing the PGA Tour could do, and they're probably on the way to doing it over this model local rule with rollback, is to take on the rules of the game themselves yeah. because there is zero profit ever and there is only downside. Yeah. Every ruling that someone doesn't like, that will be a disaster should that end up being the path that they choose. It would be the stupidest thing they could do because, and you know, Tim Finch I just think that. it's, honestly, I just think it's disingenuous bullshit. I, I genuinely do when, I, when I hear guys come yeah. out, excuse, excuse my language, but when I hear guys come out with that stuff, it just, you know, Phil Mickelson's not an idiot. He's a smart guy. He knows what he's saying and he's, he knows that what he's saying is false. He's just doing it to try and, you know, influence people who aren't smart enough to realise just how wrong he is when he says it. So it's just hopeless. It's 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 terrible. You wonder what our Mickelson takes going to be in twenty years, don't you? I don't want to go that down that rabbit hole now. It's going to be very interesting to see how history judges Phil Mickelson. I think he's a fascinating character, isn't he? There's uh, like him or so not, many, he's interesting. So many dimensions, <laughs> yeah. and I think there's there's different dimensions to his public demeanour and different dimensions to his private demeanour and the two get mixed up sometimes and some the mask slips sometimes and that's fascinating and then yeah there's people thought tiger was a pr genius until the fall after the fire hydrant but there's never been a better marketing of their own brand person than mickelson that whole hitting the moving ball at shinnecock hills (laughs) and 10 days later the stupid dancing ad with the shirt oh yeah just so calculated yeah incredibly calculated, and usually getting it right yeah absolutely they got it 100 percent right he was forgiven immediately that was an unforgivable thing that he did at shinnecock hills and he was just forgiven immediately anyway let's move on talk about some of the highlights of this golf at michael what particularly impressed you what didn't you expect to see that made you go wow i never would have thought of that but that is brilliant yeah, I think it's the fact that they, I say they, as in the RNA, they, they've sweated the small stuff. They, they really have poured over details. Simple things that I had never seen at a driving range until now, which just uh, on, on reflection seems so breathtakingly obvious that I can't believe it's not been done. In one of the, or in several of the bays rather, there is a child swing for putting really young infants in so that they can swing away quite the thing. They're not sitting in their pram. They're upright. They're 
they're mobile, they're self-supporting, and they're watching you, and they're having a bit of fun as well. You know, that is at the back of several of the bays. That's just a really yeah. cool, clever Brilliant. finishing touch that's going to encourage so you you know, to, uh, parents who otherwise can't go. Half the fun of, of taking kids to the driving range, though, is putting the pram behind the... <laughs> The, the bay and then like forgetting the break and then worrying about them drifting into the next bay or something. That's dangerously close to tea party, it sounds to me too, like which you've obviously trademarked, so you might need to talk to you about. Uh, but Michael, if only they used interesting colours and stuff, that would attract a younger crowd, wouldn't it? This- yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's very bright, it's very bold, it's, it's like it's orange what? and yellow everywhere you look. And, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just everything that I wouldn't have expected. You know, it's, it's going to challenge some stereotypes for sure, you know. There's, there's not a, a hint of khaki to be seen anywhere. Um, what? I, I think that even just the, the type of <laughs> no, I think it's just the type of personalities that got working there as well. You know, wearing hoodies and t-shirts. That is a bold. It shouldn't be. It, it really shouldn't be a bold and radical look, but it is for a game that's still trying to reconcile what it thinks its public image should be. So I think having staff members wearing that in a RNA finance facility is quite a. It's quite a statement. What a game we have when we think that's quite a statement. There's something about this, Michael. <laughs> obviously, this is aimed at obviously this is aimed at sort of new golfers and attracting new golfers or those perhaps interested. But I'm interested in what you think the impact might be on existing golfers. I can think of a couple of my mates that if you took into took them to this place, their initial reaction would be, "This is insane. It shouldn't be this way. It's got nothing to do with golf." But I wonder whether after an hour, most golfers would kind of get it. What's your thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure that it is necessarily designed for existing golfers and people who, who are already several further steps down that pathway. That I think the idea of this facility is to create opportunity first and foremost. If you already have the opportunity, would you go there? That's up for debate. But it's also, as I said, to, to fill in a, a missing part of the, the pathway to creating full members and such like. So I, I guess that if a, an existing golfer was to go there, it might feel like a, a regressive step on their part. But the the question I always ask myself, no matter what I do when I'm spending my money, is am I getting value out of this? And that can be measured in a number of ways. And I think that for an existing golfer to go to golf it, the value that they're going to look for is, is this a decent enough facility where I'm going to be able to work in my game and practice and improve? The answer is yes. And also, am I having fun doing it? I, I cannot imagine how anybody can enjoy being in that environment. It's light, it's airy, it's spacious. There's music playing. It's it is designed to be an entertain an entertainment complex. So, yeah, I think you'd need to have exceptionally high standards, or perhaps maybe unrealistic standards, to to not enjoy spending some time there. If if only they had some sort of like a huge <laughs> golf equipment library that you could choose to hire equipment from, Michael. It, there's nothing like that there, is there? <laughs> Oh, heaven forbid. You know, again, another really smart move. I mean, challenging one of the biggest stereotypes, again, that golf has to face and it's tackling it head on is the, the fact that it's an expensive game to play. I I have received a, a lot of pushback from people over the years when I've maintained that golf is expensive. And it is. Relative to other sports, it costs a lot of money. You know, You need to have the right clothing. You need to have a lot of equipment and a lot of... <laughs> you know, accessories, the right shoes, then you need to pay for access to golf courses and so on. If I want to play football, I'm going to buy a football and go to the nearest park and I can do it. If I want to go running, I'm going to buy a pair of trainers and that's me off. I go, I don't need to pay for access to my road. 
So golf, you know, there are financial barriers there. And I think particularly at a time when, I don't know how it is in Australia, but over here in the UK, when we're dealing with a cost of living crisis that certainly on a scale that I can't recall in my lifetime, it's anything that helps to make the game even the slightest bit more affordable for people and remove a blocker to participation has to be lauded. So to, to allow people opportunity to go to this driving range and use equipment free of charge, it's just... Uh, I'm, I'm, it sounds... This, I appreciate this does sound like I'm being paid by the RNA and God almighty, I wish I was. Uh, but... I mean, like I said earlier, Martin Slumbers is smart with his money, so he's not exactly going to give it to me. But I think that it's hard to find fault in what they've done. There was a lot of places and a lot of ways that they could have come unstuck with this. And believe me, I'd have been on the case with it. But it's it's so hard to pick fault because of the fact that they've sweated the small stuff. Yeah. Well, the the remaining nine holes are like terrible golf, aren't they? Is there, you know, is there, what have they done to the remaining nine holes at the facility? Listen, I'm not going to lie. It's it's not exactly <laughs> Augusta National. It's it's not Pebble Beach, but it, it, they they are they are nine good golf holes. You know, if if you have the realistic expectations about what you're going to get for your money, then I think you'll enjoy yourself. So. No, it, it, it's not going to be hosting the, the Open Championship anytime soon. I think there's more chance of Presswick getting back on the open rota before golf it, frankly. But it's I, I think, it's good enough. You know what I mean? It's, it's good well, enough. Well, surely they're way better than what was there before. Mm, absolutely, because the investment's there. And, you know, they, they brought in the right people to work on it. Uh, Scott McPherson, I think it was. Um, mm. consulted on the design of the golf course and the first thing I noticed when I walked on one of the practice putting greens to interview one of the staff members there was oh my god the purity of this surface you know it was so pure so slick don't get me wrong opening day it should be good do you know what I mean if a golf course doesn't look phenomenal on the day it opens then it's got problems but really really impressed by by the quality of it but also the playability of it, you know, I think it's fair. There's a, a, a whole bunch of tees, uh, you know, young kids can take on quirky little short par threes, which for me has always been the most fun part of golf is taking on short par threes. Uh, I think any long par three that's over 200 yards, nah, go away, leave me alone. But I, I think, you know, they've created these short holes that kids are going to enjoy playing. So they, they, they really have figured it out. I think that there's a lot of potential in it. My, <laughs> my overarching... Not concern, but curiosity is just how they roll this out. Because I don't think it's any great secret that golf it is a bit of a proof of concept. Mm. And, you know, there are a lot of other cities and a lot of other countries around the world that would love this facility. I'm really lucky because it's 10 minutes drive from my front door. But, you know, I, I get it. It's, it's not exactly like you guys, for example, can jump in the car and hop on a plane and come here, play the nine holes and, you know, have some street food and then go back home. So how does the RNA take this blueprint and roll it out? Does it even have the means? Is that even realistic? Absolutely no idea. But I am excited to see. It's super interesting. Just on that in the library of clubs in the front, take note uh, GA slash PGA slash Sandringham links, that beautiful putting green, that fabulous Himalaya-style putting green at the front gate there. Should be free or at best a golf a gold coin donation for people to use. It's mm -hmm. a, it's insane Agreed. that it's constantly empty. Yeah, we've got a fantastic facility there. Um, th it's interesting to contrast 
the approach taken there at Sandringham, which is very good in its own way to this approach here. Um, Sandringham, um, Michael, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, is uh, was um, a very good public golf course in Melbourne. Across the road from Royal Melbourne. Eight, 18 holes, yeah, across the road from Mel- Royal Melbourne. Um, also, you know, the, in a, an arrangement with Royal Melbourne where Royal Melbourne sort of looks after the course and shares equipment and staff uh, across the course. In fact, I think uh, the Sandringham employees are actually employed by Royal Melbourne. Yeah. And uh, it, the governing bodies here in Australia, um, uh, you know, made a, a, an enormous investment to set up uh, their HQ at Sandringham Golf Club. And in order to make room for that, the course had to be remodelled. And there was quite a debate about whether it should be reduced to a 12-hole course to make more room for the HQ and for other stuff, um, high-performance facilities and that sort of thing, or uh, whether to make it 18 shorter holes and still put the um, you know HQ there and not really compromise yeah, HQ. Quiz time. Michael, which one of those debates do you reckon got up? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just... <laughs> Pop quiz, sorry, Loke. <laughs> yeah, I mean, regardless of which one got chosen, it was extremely important that um, better golf got put there, and that's what happened. the The golf course is superb. It's eighteen holes. Um, it doesn't play like a short course. There's some shortish holes, but you, it actually takes every club. It, you, you really test every club, every type of golf shot you've got in your bag. And uh, it's actually 18 very good holes of golf. And the idea is that it gives uh, it gives everybody a taste of sandbelt golf. Fabulously looked after, by the way, by Jerry yep. O'Callaghan, one of the few yes. female superintendents in the country. Yes, that's right. And uh, it's got the same, mostly the same grassing as Royal Melbourne and the same sort of mowing lines and the same sort of, um, yeah, the, the experience is very similar to playing Royal Melbourne you know, on very similar land right next door there. And, uh, you know, it's a taste of sandbelt golf, um, some of the highest quality golf you can get in the world for like 30 or $40, I think, mm-hmm. at some times of the week, and much more relaxed rules and stuff. It, it's From a golf perspective, from a pure golf perspective, it's extremely successful. Um, but the, the other parts of what's been put there aren't necessarily attracting non-golfers in. And I find that interesting. Like, And there's... You know, Rod mentioned this fantastic Himalayas putting green right near the entrance there. It's really striking when you come in immediately on your right. There's this fantastic thing. And and I, I think even a lot of golfers, maybe the majority of golfers, wouldn't recognise what that is. No. Um, You've got to stop and notice the pins. And go, oh, actually, is that yeah. a putting green? It's that kind of thing. Oh, that's a, that's a green. Yeah, and, or, and that's that it's also a homage to yeah, the, like, Himalayas. the Himalayas at St Andrews. I, I think... Uh, it's, it's a tough one, but you know you need to see to use it as the problem. You know what would help? Yeah, that's right. And what would help people immediately recognise what it is is if there were people golfers were on it. There. That's exactly right. <laughs> if golfers were on there putting on it, so <laughs> yeah, I think it's a really long winded way of saying yeah, I agree. Maybe a gold letter, a gold coin um, For a donation or something, or something like that. Who wouldn't chuck a two dollar coin into it? And some just some way to get a bunch of school kids crawling all over it every afternoon or something. That Clearly, that problem doesn't exist with golf. It, and I'm interested in the contrast of the approach here where you had an 18-hole course and reduced it down to nine holes. Mm. So had a lot more room to play with. And there's they've crammed a lot of stuff into that remaining room. Um, and, you know, there's driving range and the mini golf. And the mini golf is extremely colourful. It's all sort of pink and purple and looks 
really pink and purple and orange and stuff. It looks very interesting. Um, it, they've they've had room to experiment, as you said, Michael. It's um, they've thrown a lot of stuff up against the wall to see what is going to stick, and it it sounds like a lot of it's going to be pretty successful because. But they had the land to do that there. Interestingly. Mm. You talked. You sort of hinted there, Michael, at this being perhaps somewhat of a blueprint, be it for the RNA to roll it elsewhere, or for other governing bodies or entities around the world to look at. God forbid, even perhaps a local council somewhere that's thinking about closing its golf course or doing something with it. What do you think the reality of that might be? Clearly, you don't want to just take that and drop it elsewhere, but it seems to me that some of the concepts that have been put in place here, that's the sort of creative thinking we need. You said that the Glasgow Council was saying, oh, they couldn't make money out of the golf course. That's clearly only because it's badly managed. Golf courses are profitable when they're properly managed. Councils are terrible at managing golf courses because they don't know anything about the product. So there's a bunch of concepts there that are important either, that we here in Australia and there's parts of America, I'm sure, where we could take that that innovative thinking and you could really make golf something worthwhile that, and work on the image of the game at the same time. Talk a bit about some of those ideas. Yeah, I think so. The first part there, the, the innovative thinking, you need to have people in place who want to innovate in the first instance to create those sort of ideas and those concepts. And for the most part, local authorities who've got other they would say bigger fish to fry, bigger problems. They're they're not going to have the space, the time, the the desire, frankly, to innovate. But the RNA has done that thinking for them. So that that is blocker number one removed. Here are the ideas. Here's the concept. Replicate it. I think the other part there in terms of local authorities who, as much as it sounds like I'm, I'm creating an advert here for golf at the RNA, that it probably also sounds like I am lobbying for the the removal of all these local authorities and local government and so on. And certainly in, in Glasgow, we, we haven't had our problems to seek with them. You just try driving on our roads sometime. But the, the issue that they had with the golf courses certainly was that they claimed that they weren't making enough money from them, that they weren't, you know, used enough. So me being me, I asked for a, I did a freedom of information request because they're publicly funded. And what you can actually see is that the the number of rounds played on those golf courses over a, a three-year period of time did decline, but it declined perfectly in line with the reduction in investment in the maintenance of those golf courses. So mm-hmm. it's it's pretty simple math here. If you invest money in facilities and maintain them properly, people will use them. If you don't, they're going to stop and they're going to either go elsewhere, which is the ambition, or they might be lost to the game completely, which is the fear, which is why the RNA have stepped in here with this new concept. So how do they roll it out? And is that even achievable? Really, really difficult for them to do, isn't it? Because they as we know, have a finite supply of funds. They have one particularly profitable uh, tournament that they administer, and then they don't have any others. You know, it was very interesting. I was at the Open last month listening to Martin Slumbers in his press conference on the the eve of the championship, which is always the most interesting press conference, frankly. And it's the same at the Masters with Fred Ridley. You know, the, the players come and go Tuesday, Wednesday, and they say the occasional bits and bobs that are... I don't know, half decent, but it's the administrators where you get the stories now. And Martin Slumbers did say that he felt that the, there was a bit of financial insanity in golf, which isn't news, but equally he pointed out that the RNA is in a bit of an invidious position because whilst they would like to keep pace with the, the prize money on offer for other tournaments because it's the Open, it should 
<laughs> it's the biggest and most important, the oldest championship of the lot. There should be a hell of a lot of money there. Uh, I believe it's now even not cracking the top 10 in lucrative championships in professional men's golf. He said, you know, we, we can't and we won't try to keep pace because we've got other things that we need to put our money into. We take the profits from this tournament and we reinvest it, yes, in prize money, but also in the grassroots of the game. That's why we exist. That's our job. So even with that, the idea that they can roll out golf it in all major cities that require it around the world, it's completely unfeasible. The, the thing where I think they might have success is franchising it. But I don't know what that model looks like. I don't have enough of a business brain to, to understand what where you would even begin with taking the franchisable elements and you know selling that or leasing it or whatever it might be. But that would appear to be the most logical thing that they could do. Yeah, that that I think is extremely interesting because what's of value to the RNA and and the RNA in service to its affiliated national bodies is. Um, it, it, if we had Richard Gillis here, he'd, oh, he'd be he getting straight to this. Yeah. It is, it's data. And, you know, I'll just look at what we've got here in Sydney and, you know, for non-golfers to get into the game, um, if they're not being introduced by a golfer at the, in their family or something, like who's who's got access to a golf club, there's two or three very influential golf courses in Sydney, Moore Park, um, North Ride and East Lake, I think, would be the ones that immediately come to mind. Um, that are accessible and they're quite good golf courses. Um, you know, actually, pretty good, very, very good, good golf courses. And uh, you can, and they're proper golf courses, That's like right. they're eighteen holes, and you can pay a green fee. You can get a tee time at certain times a week. It might take over five hours to play, but um, you're going to experience golf as you expect it as you've seen it on TV. And for that reason, and that's been many, many, many people's introduction to golf is, you know, the, these um, these quite influential golf courses that you can access and it's proper golf. There's there's another type of golf in Sydney where, um, which I think is starting to emerge, where we've got like Camaray mm-hmm. um, up the road here, which was a uh, stalwart nine-hole golf course with always had public access, had membership as well. Um, very interesting, quite good clubhouse, sort of perched on top of a hill with great views, um, but a very average nine holes and uh, chaotic sort of experience mm-hmm. playing golf there, actually, very balls much. flying everywhere. Yeah. Um, now that's been completely redone. That was forced upon them because of a freeway project that was going through. They lost a bunch of land and it's had to be converted into a nine hole course. You said the uh, sorry, a nine hole par three course. Yeah. It was a nine hole sort of uh, almost full length course uh, before and yeah uh, we went and had a game there the other day and they've done a superb job with it it's a lot of fun and some of the things that really um, uh, struck home to me just what was important in this type of golf are uh, a a lot of tees there's a lot of teeing grounds the teeing grounds are huge actually for such a small property they've got a very large selection of tees Um, one of the tees is always um, got some astroturf as well, some fake turf, which makes a huge amount of sense, I reckon. Um, For a high traffic course, absolutely. Yeah, and uh, actually looks fine. And it's landscaped in a way that those strips of AstroTurf are actually pretty much hidden with the, t- the way the T sort of tiered down. Uh, so that was quite effective. The greens are interesting but have access from the front. Uh-huh. So you can, you can like you can duff, duff a ball onto most of the greens. 
and uh, and they also sort of even have, I might think about. That. <laughs> <laughs> they also uh, and credit to Richard Chamberlain, um, the architect who I think described it as the most difficult project he's ever had to work on because it's such a tricky little piece of land and there was a lot to negotiate. Um, but he's done a tremendous job there, and it's it's a really fun place. There's lots of feeding slopes. The ball can feed into the green. There's a few bunkers you can get yourself in, um, but none of the bunkers, I think, are going to cause a problem if you scull it out of the bunker. It's going to go flying into the neighbourhood or anything like that. Um, Don't so, make me prove you wrong. <laughs> so uh, a really good concept there. Um, just to get to the Richard Gillis bit, though, none of, none of those places I've mentioned in Sydney – funnel those players into some central sort of database if, if you want. And in fact, I don't think any of those clubs would really have any means of retaining the information about the people who visited there yeah, on no any of those days. Um, and, uh, you know, we live in a society where there's a lot of um, tracking of what, you, what you're doing. Um, but if that can be done in a way where the majority of new people to the game are all funneled through a single facility or a few facilities – then it becomes the recognised way into golf. Those those places become incredibly influential. And if there's a really easy way to opt in that your details are in the system, then then you can start to – these governing bodies can start to sort of put their arms around these the, – the, the people – who they just don't have access to normally and, and move them into golf mm. from that point forward. Other oh, businesses do that well, don't they? Golf doesn't. Golf doesn't do that well. But, yeah, there's uh, there's this endless speculation about estimating how many social and casual golfers there are in Australia. And I, I hear the same debate happening wherever I go in the world. And the truth is nobody has any idea. Uh, it's always some estimates based on um, – Actuaries looking at uh, isolated bits of data and Educated trying to extrapolate it, isn't it? extrapolate out from that, and taking nothing away, they're you know very sophisticated techniques they use, and they come up with a number, but the numbers vary wildly. And my observation has been, whenever it's put to the test with some big program that tries to capture a large percentage of that social and casual golfer market, those programs almost invariably fail. Mm. Um, that you know they'll often in Australia the sort of numbers we talk about are always like oh yeah there's there's one million and you hear numbers right up to like nine million people who are interested in golf in Australia, but then when that's put to the test, you see the programs that get launched even with hundreds of thousands of dollars behind them might capture two thousand three thousand people. Like, they just that, fail miserably. That algorithm isn't working, is it? There's something no, wrong with the mathematics there. There's something, something wrong. Yeah. So yeah, I'm interested in whether these facilities or a facility like this in each city can come up with a way that it's a, it's first of all it's funneling all golfers through a single place, and second there's of all, follow up. It's getting some details. You visited. There's an app. What's the it's technology? It's getting some details in an ethical way that yeah. they they're opting into, and then you can do some follow up. Put your arms around. Yeah. Is, what is there a tech aspect to golf? I think that's actually a really Michael? interesting point that you've just made there. Yeah, yeah. What I was going to say, just quickly, if that's right, uh, to what uh, Logue's saying there about you know funneling people through a single sort of point of entry. I mean, it's funny, I, I, I do get frustrated at times. I don't know what it's like in, in Australia, but over here in the UK, when I go to park my car in a public car park, I now have, I, I'm looking at my phone, I've got four different apps mm. for paying to park my car. And I'm like, why yeah. can I not just have one? I mean, that's a, that's a hugely first world problem. But in the instance of this, I guess the challenge a lot of people would have is, 
right, we've got the willingness, we've got the space and we've got some funds and some investment to create a golf facility. What do you want it to look like? Whereas what the RNA now have is they are leading by example. They're saying, here is an example of what to do. Just do that. You know, that just do that and you'll be okay. Um, to the to the point of the, the it is very easy for somebody like the RNA and an organisation like that to stand back and criticise and say there's not enough of this and they're not doing that right and we do this wrongly. You know, they're they're putting their money quite literally where their mouths are. So I think that's commendable. To the, to the point of the tech, uh, I, you know, I, it's not something I even really noticed when I was there, but they are using the likes of top tracer range on the driving range, so it's not just a case of shelling balls and, and hoping for the best. I mean, there are games that kids can play, you know, go fish and all that kind of stuff. So they've, they've, they've worked with those partners to create that. Um, <laughs> yes, there were paper scorecards that I saw kicking about. Uh, I, I don't know what it's like when people then, you know, go to the, the facility, use it, are you then going to get a follow-up email or are you opting into things? The GDPR um, regulations over here are so tight that I'm sure they're probably still sweating about some of It's kind of more what I was thinking if there was an app that – and so that the experience isn't just left. This is what happens with golf. You take someone to the driving range for the first time, they hit 50 or 100 balls and they go away and that's it. Golf never comes back to them and says, mm-hmm. how was that? Did you like it? Is there something yep. else you'd like to do? We're having this event on this date. You're welcome to come along. We don't do any of that. I mean, individual facilities may. I'm not sure. But this feels like a place where you walk in the door, there's a QR code. It downloads the app for you. You sign in and then you have a point of communication with everybody who goes through the place from then on and that feels like the use of the phone that could really work i michael fancy boy with his four um <laughs> four payment four, options for his car, uh, car things but i mean <laughs> but <laughs> i just don't carry money what can i say covid is covid is taking coins out but that is um a fantastic example that that's the most transitional of interactions that yeah. you're having and yet they get you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, four of them got you. Yeah. Not just one, That's four right. of them, you know, and you That's continue right. to go. And and there are um and, and the Q you're right, Rod, you've somehow hit on a good technical solution there with the QR mm. code because that that is we don't invariably where that conversation is. For fifteen goes. years it's been the greatest p- potential technology. We just never use it. Yeah. QR code. The pandemic helped, and a lot of people are familiar with it now, but it still hasn't taken off yeah. the way it could and should. I, that is the I mean I've I, been involved in these discussions and that and that is what everyone always lands on is you know there should be some sort of QR code and and that makes it um something that you can effectively be you can choose to be a part of it yeah. then like you can walk straight past the QR code if you want or you can scan the QR code and uh you know there's got to be something in it for you to do that you've still got to be able to opt in or opt out yeah. of of what's happening inside whatever app gets put on your phone um but you know that at least there's more opportunities there to to bring to usher the person into the golf ecosystem. I just had a vision then when you said, you know, you can walk past the QR code. I had a vision of one of those Scooby-Doo type things where there's some eyes in the QR code <laughs> watching you go past. <laughs> <laughs> They're keeping an eye now, from, now you're from within. Michael, something that's really that's important. Actually, it's such sorry. a good point though, Rod. Sorry, Rod, that, that's actually a really good point about golf doesn't get in touch with you after you've experienced mm. golf. Yeah. You know, how was it? Did you enjoy it? What could we do better? You think of all the people who visit golf clubs every yeah. single day all around the world. And, you know, the, there's so many things that golf clubs get wrong and it just frustrates me. You know, over here we've got, they'll, they'll use their websites and on the homepage of their website, they'll tell you all about their pro. I'm going no. I'm, I'm to play golf. You know what I mean? Tell me about how much it's going to cost me to join this club that I'm going to come and visit and tell me how much it's going to cost per month. Stick, you know, take the gym approach 
to running your yep. golf club and running your website. Tell people the bits that are really actually relevant to them, not the bits that you think are Make it impossible for them to cancel their membership. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that Go- golf is really a series of one-night stands, isn't it? Unless you're a member at a golf club. That yeah. is exactly what happens. It's a, it's a quick interaction and there's never any follow-up from that. Michael, one of the interesting things about public golf, and you kind of touched on it or pointed to it there, and we were talking about not being able to make profits and those kinds of things. It feels to me that that's the trade-off that public golf can offer municipal councils and those sorts of things is that, yes, we take up a lot of space. It's the biggest criticism. We use some resources. That's true. As do parks and football fields. Parks and football fields, libraries and swimming pools can never return a profit to the community. Mm. Golf in return for the privilege of having access to more space in one place can return a profit. Mm -hmm. That's the the, the transaction that golf should be making at that level. And I'm not sure that we do that. Instead, what we do is we say to council, say, we don't know anything about golf, find somebody to operate the course, disincentivize them investing in the course and looking after the product so they just essentially strip it over a period of whatever their lease terms are without putting anything back in and then you're left with a poor facility that makes it harder and harder to do that. Whose job is it to do that work? Well, who goes to the councils and explains to them that this is the model if we work on this better for golf? I've always thought it's Golf Australia's job here in, golf, in Australia. There should be somebody who's paid X number of dollars per year to drive around in a car, knock on council doors and say, hey, you've got a golf course. Here's some things to think about with the way you run it that can make it a better a better asset for the community. What do you think about that, Michael? That's another thing I think we get kind of wrong. It's something that we just don't do, isn't it? I mm. think uh, to that point, it's about essentially having a professional lobbyist on behalf of the sport, isn't it? Yep. And in that sense, who governs the, the game's grassroots? Because it doesn't get more grassroots than that. And that is over here, that's Scottish golf. I guess for you guys, the equivalent is Golf Australia. You're talking about England golf. You're talking about all the national governing bodies. They should have somebody, I quite agree, they should have somebody who... Yeah, when they're not lobbying the councils, they are working with them to find ways to use their sites to the fullest extent and to, to maximise the value. You know, it's people say that sport and politics should never mix. Rubbish. Yeah, I, 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 I do hear that, but I just think it's complete dis, uh, it's disingenuous nonsense again because the, the two can achieve incredible results when they actually work together. So we need to make it harder and harder for councils to close golf courses you're right, they're big bits of land, they are incredibly soft targets, and big bits of land when you're a, a council that's looking to either cut costs or, you know, prop up the, the coffers and uh, earn you know some sway and curry favour with property developers, those are, those are really good targets to, to have in your crosshairs. Mm. I just think it's far too easy to, to close down a golf course and to not really see the broader consequences. I, I get, I shouldn't go into this, but I get so aggravated by the inevitable. I, I think was it Jimmy Emanuel picked up on it as well, and uh, not that long ago. When you see the the usual tripe that comes out from somebody at a broadsheet newspaper who obviously is struggling to find something in time for deadline, and just says, "Oh, let's close all golf courses." Yeah. Mm. No, let, let's let's not. Let's 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 open our minds a little bit, you know, and see the massive multitude of benefits that this sport brings across an absolutely enormous number of metrics it's yeah. oh, it frustrates me greatly but to have that point person within the sport working with local authorities i think that would be a great idea 
whenever you see those stories, whenever I see those stories, and there's been plenty of them here, and I've taken aim at a couple of them myself, there's two problems with that. One is those people talk to an enormous audience, and we in golf talk to people who've already converted, so we're, we're kind of losing in that space. But what I always want to do with the Clover Moors and the Nicky Gemmels is go down to Moore Park with them, introduce them to somebody who's standing in a paragolfer, and have them explain to that person why that golf facility should be taken away from them. Hmm. And all of them would balk at that immediately and go, oh, we didn't realise it was. No, of course you didn't, because you didn't do any research. You're hmm. lazy. It's the laziness of that, Michael. That's a media issue. Jones that is the laziness. Lazy. Yeah. They don't both. It's like, here's a headline. Yeah. This is easy. I was walking in the park the other day, and I looked across, and there were only three people on the golf course. There's a story where we go. I'm not going to pretend I'm not guilty of it sometimes. I think we all are when there's a deadline and there's space to fill in those kinds of, of things. Of course, yeah. But it needs to be pointed out and pulled up. That Nikki Gemmel piece in particular a couple of years ago yeah. really infuriated me. She's infl- influential, a good writer, mm-hmm. writes a colourful story. The narrative that she a, painted- A if big you platform. Know, that's exactly right. You know, kids curled up like question marks on the- All this sort of nonsense. Like, you know, the damage you are doing to people who aren't Kerry Packer or members at the Australian Golf yeah. Club is almost mm-hmm. incalculable. Yeah. And you've not given it a single thought. And none of those people have ever answered- any of the tweets that have tagged them talking about this stuff. Mm. Not a single one. Oh, oh, 100%. Uh, one of the bigger problems is as well that, you know, you're talking about, you know, trying to fill space. The problem is that with internet, there's infinite space. That's right. So if somebody's, you know, at a loose end, it's like, you know what, I feel like writing something today to try and prove my worth and, you know, to, to take myself out of the firing line when the next round of cost-cutting measures at my media group <laughs> comes around, I'm going to write something today. And it's invariably that sort of lazy, easy, cheap, pot-shotty narrative. And you know, the, 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 worst, the worst line in the lot is golf's bad for the environment. No. Is it? Because there's a golf course that's 30 miles away from where I'm sitting right now that has reintroduced a, a species of butterfly to the local environment that was its natural habitat and it was dying out through the work of those conservationists employed by that club it's now thriving again. That's one tiny, tiny example. And there are so many more like it. I mean... I, what's I required, of course, for a butterfly... What's required, of course, for a butterfly is the right <laughs> flora and fauna around it. Like, it's it's much more than All one that. species. I, 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 feel for, I feel for green keepers because, you know, they've, they've such a... On the face of it, such a great job. And I've written about this recently about the mental health crisis and greenkeeping. Mm-hmm. They've got such, on the face of it, a great job. You know, you, you get to work in the outdoors and it's nice weather and you're finished by lunchtime. The rest of the day is yours and all that sort of stuff. I mean, there are obvious pitfalls with that as well. Not least the fact that you get these clowns, you know, willfully brainlessly writing this nonsense about how you are destroying the environment. You're basically causing bird seagull genocide with the pollution that you're pouring into the ground. There's not a greenkeeper in the world who is willfully doing that. It's it's just so damaging in so many respects when you see these pieces and I wish they would just stop. Yeah. I really do. It, in um in fairness, there are there are times that uh, just settle down for a minute, Michael. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a way to calm someone down. Say, calm down. Yeah, there you go. Um, in fairness, there are times when uh, when golf gets called out um, by people who have done their research, mm-hmm. and yeah. we should pay attention to that. Of course, we should. And uh, I think we go like golf in general has this uh, on the well. Actually, no, this is golf very specifically. <laughs> You're getting yourself banned from several clubs if very, you continue down that path. Very specific. No, no, golf <laughs> specifically on the internet immediately reacts with hostility. Oh, yes, and uh, it doesn't oh. matter 
how well researched sometimes. I, I mean, I think this this just always has to be acknowledged that sometimes golf gets criticised and the reaction on the internet is extremely um, horrendous. I, and uh, But there's good points being made which we need to pay attention to. And the environmental ones, uh, there, there's, there's good and bad mixed in there. Golf does do some fantastic things for the environment. Um, I think, you know, the urban heat island effect is one really important thing that any golf course has a tremendous impact on regardless of uh, how poorly managed the golf course is. Um, it reduces the heat footprint of urban areas and uh, that's tremendously important and I think there's studies that show, uh, studies that have nothing to do with golf that show one of the biggest um, economic indicators of uh, all sorts of factors from healthcare right through to availability of public transport and everything is just to measure the average temperature of a suburb and, uh, you know, places that have green space and golf courses are very big green spaces uh, generally uh, have an uptick in every single economic measure that you can point a finger at. And uh, uh, and there's this extremely strong correlation between temperature and, and uh um, the health of the population and just availability stuff? of shade and things like that. Where do you get this stuff? I know you're amazing <laughs> how you pull this up and I'm sitting here thinking this is an incredibly, you know, interesting and uh, sounds fantastic. Where do you find this stuff? It's amazing. I, I've, I've got my sources. I can't reveal them. How are you um, not, you're not helping me to stop three-putting. What's the point of this? But that doesn't mean we shouldn't pay attention to the more micro detail that we're being confronted with on, on all the time by people who do do their research and suggest that golf courses could actually be... Better. Uh, doing a better job at biodiversity and um, and having you know less surface dedicated to manicured um, playing surfaces and look at the the entirety of the property and and consider what parts of the property are actually needed for golf and what parts of the property aren't needed for golf and and this is something that private golf courses should pay attention to. We've talked a lot about public golf, but private golf courses need to pay attention to this and they've got a responsibility with the money that they have. Uh, because they are very good at making money to hire, um, you know, biodiversity managers. Kate and, Torgensen. Yeah, Kate Torgensen's a great example. Um, I've just forgotten her name, but the biodiversity manager at Glenelg oh, Golf yes. Club in Adelaide does a fantastic job. And uh, th- and I've actually my daughter, who's interested in this area and urban development and urban. Um, it's not golf. You ruined that for it, didn't you? On one, one winter's morning. In well, fun, <laughs> funnily enough. And revealed your yeah. sources all of <laughs> Funnily enough, she's interested in uh, in looking at roles in biodiversity uh, at golf facilities in the UK. Okay. Like that's that's something she wants like to Like you, she's looking for a junket overseas. Yeah. <laughs> well, absolutely. Apple, Apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Absolutely. But, uh, you know, so that that's a really important thing. Um, but I just I, – I do want to come circle back briefly to one thing about um, the, gov- the role of governing bodies in advising public golf courses and just acknowledge that uh, there there's a real unsung – it, it doesn't. It's not very high profile because it's not um, sexy. It, well, it's not uh, elite programs that produce you know the the next great player. Um, but every governing body does have a, generally have a clubs and facilities support department. And uh, Golf Australia has a clubs and facilities a very strong clubs and facilities support department. I think if you interview the average golfer in Australia and they and ask them. A, what do you pay to your governing body? They'd come up with a variety of numbers. Most of them would be assuming it's more than what actually goes through to Golf Australia. Um, but uh, B, if you ask them, what do you get for that? I think most of them would say, oh, we, I get a handicap. handicap. That's it. And 
that's true. And I think that's something the governing body should take more notice of when they're spending the money. They should realise that handicapping is the core of golf. It's the heartbeat. It's the it's the centrepiece that everything else is built around. I'm a big handicapping guy. You are a big handicapping uh, guy, aren't you? The two-horse race always backs up interest. Yeah. <laughs> but what I think the average golfer <laughs> should, should know but doesn't realise is that clubs and facilities are a major area of investment for most governing bodies around the world. And it covers off um, – uh, and, and they do do a lot of great work in producing material that clubs can use, but they, I, I feel where where they seem seemingly stop is they say, well, it's not our business to actually run the facility, um, but I, I feel like sometimes they should kind just, of is. they should get involved. It's like, well, we can we can show how it should be done and provide all the information you need around governance and hospitality management and volunteer management and laws and bylaws and um, how to cater for golfers with a disability and stuff. We can publish all that information on our website, but um, we're, we're not actually getting in there, rolling the sleeves up and Here's doing it. Here's how to do it. Here's how to sell it to your membership and explain it to them and yeah. get golfers on board. Yeah, and do in there and sort of that white glove service yeah. of actually like showing them how to do it. Now, again, I've got to temper that with sometimes they do do yeah, that. That's true, yes. They but do. often it's reactive when yeah. a club's under threat. threat. Yeah. yeah. So... Uh, anyway, that's we lay an awful lot at the feet of authorities too, unfairly a lot of the time, and they can't possibly do everything that I do. They can't do everything. Weekly basis. They, have, they don't have unlimited resources. <laughs> that's exactly right. And you know, I think you, we always have to remember that they're just people, and they're trying they're to do best. their best job. And if like interview all the, they, there's no moustache twirling, no. uh, evil plan from these governing bodies imagine to like take were, your money away from imagine if there imagine was imagine if you were down at Sandy what would they and you wandered through the wrong door in GA yeah. headquarters and you found a guy sitting there twirling, <laughs> twirling his moustache trying to destroy the game from yeah. that would be hilarious and he's, he's got some yeah. like scale model <laughs> yeah, of right. like a made a of plasticine a bond villain <laughs> thing which Moving he quickly around. hides it behind his desk <laughs> clearly far so, too oh you weren't meant to see that that's right something you said earlier talking about green keepers Michael and superintendents you're right of course the biggest downside of all that for poor I'll call super is that they've then got to deal with golfers who have no idea what green keepers do and what's involved in it and can only ever find fault. Nobody ever goes to the core super and says, course is fantastic. Ever. Oh, exactly. There's never, ever, no appreciation. ever. It's, uh, yeah, that, that's exactly right. I think um, it's, it's the nature of human uh, existence as well, though, isn't it? That, that That's who we are. We, We'll, we'll speak up when we want to complain and we'll just quietly nod and be, we'll, we're, we're, we're quietly satisfied but we're very loudly ang, uh, angered and I think that that's, that's not a great quality but yeah I think that certainly as far as, as greenkeepers go no golf courses exist without no, them do they? Exactly. I mean they are absolute unsung heroes and they have to do a, a hell of a tough job I think things like the Masters don't uh, help you know people watch Augusta once a year they see this thing that's been primed to look phenomenal and be manicured to the most outrageous degrees with the most outrageous uh, amount of money thrown at it and that sets people's expectations exceptionally high. Uh, it's it's al- almost impossible to replicate that. Today, the same giving it to Augusta National for being too green. <laughs> we're, we're we're deep into the into the fact catalogue. Uh, last thing from me, Michael. We outside Scotland are horrified at the notion that in the very home of golf, there could be issues facing public golf that you know councils want to close golf courses. It is true, and of course, no, nothing's ever binary. 
the the example Scotland sets in places like St Andrews is fantastic. The simple fact that the golf course is part of the town and does not generate the animosity towards the game amongst non-golfers that we do see in other parts of the world. But what's the reality of golf in Scotland? We see this in Australia too. People from outside Australia think that on every street corner there's a Royal Melbourne or a Victoria Golf Club. That, of course, is not true. It's a fanciful notion. We've probably got the same sorts of misconceptions about Scotland. What's the reality and the truth of public golf in Scotland and and by definition then the nature of the rest of the game or the health of the rest of the game beyond those public facilities? So I think to answer the second part first, the health of the game, it's improving all the time. I, I, I don't think that there is any golf nation on earth that hasn't benefited from the, the upturn in participation that was caused by COVID. I hesitate to say that anything good came from, from the pandemic. If, if anything did good come if anything good did come from it, it is the fact that more people are now playing golf because they had disposable time and money to, to give it a go. And they've sustained it. You know, the, the, the attrition that I think we expected to see in terms of memberships hasn't really happened. There's been a little bit of it, but, you know, participation rates remain high. So I think that golf in Scotland is in a better place than it's been for a long time. There was a lot of animosity felt by the various stakeholders towards Scottish golf not that long ago over affiliation fees. And there was a real feeling that the governance of the game wasn't in the greatest of health. Chief executives coming and going on what seemed like a, a non-stop uh, basis. Things are settling down now, I think, a little bit. Uh, there's a, a bit of a better, clearer understanding of, of what everyone's role is and where everyone fits within that. In terms of public golf, yeah, I I, I would say that the, the issue that we're seeing in Glasgow in terms of the, the City Council maybe not valuing, or certainly not valuing it, the, the courses it has as much as it should. That's not unique to Glasgow City Council. It's not even unique to Scotland. I've seen it happening in England quite a lot with council-run facilities being threatened, and that just horrifies me on a cellular level because they are critical parts of the pathway. But, you know, the things in Scotland, we have such phenomenal public golf courses. You know, if you were to take some of these council-run facilities and drop them in a whole other number of countries around the world, they would stand out, you know, head and shoulders above the rest. I'm talking about Belial down in Ayr, for example, or Seafield next door, which is a, a, a modest course, but a phenomenally fun challenge. You've then got the three courses at Troon, just the other side of the railway. You come off the platform one side and there's Royal Troon. The other side, you've got the, the Darley, Fullerton and Loch Green, which are fantastic. Again, run by Golf South Ayrshire. Up in Aberdeen, Kings Links, for example, you know, the the public golf in Scotland, the offering we have is fantastic and it's unique and it should be better supported than it currently is. Because, as I say, it's a, it's a critical part of getting people playing golf. I, I, I might be coming at it from a completely biased point of view, but yeah, that's fine. That's because that's how I got started. And I've been lucky enough to make my career in this sport for 20 years. Never good enough to play at any level. Never had ambitions to play at any level. But I'm proud to be part of it in this yeah. Yeah, exactly I'm proud to be part of it in the, the small way that I am and Scotland should be a standard bearer uh, maybe that's too grandiose a sentiment mm. but you know we are the home of golf and we should lead by example this is where our administrators are based and this is where the the game's you know grassroots are we should lead and we should be proud to lead we shouldn't 
ever ever be negligent or complacent about. You're that. absolutely right, and don't ever don't ever apologise for campaigning for public golf above all else. Because Sandy Jamison's experiment that he does at any club that he visits or you know, he's always threatens to do is a hundred percent right. If you go to any the most expensive private club in Australia on a Saturday afternoon when the comps finished and everyone's sitting in the bar and say to them, hands up who began their golf at a public course, well and truly into the majority of those people, their hands will go up. Mm. So if you're sitting at a fancy club thinking none of this affects you, fast forward 20 years if public golf disappears and wonder where your club and facility might be and it's not good. The very, very, very best will always survive. Royal Melbourne is never going to have a problem. But you go start going down the tiers and those semi-private golf clubs that are the lifeblood of the game in this country, if public golf goes away, they eventually go away too. And mm. that's just unaffordable, which is why they should have an Not interest. Anymore. They should have an interest in public golf themselves. The other disconnect we have is that private facilities or semi-private facilities all too often see themselves as competitors to public golf. Public golf is taking away from them. If that public golf course wasn't there, people would come here to play golf. And that's the wrong way to think about it because it's not true, I don't think. Mm. Public facilities should be supported by other local private facilities yes. in whatever arrangement they come with, a big brother, little brother. That's your feeding ground. You want more members, ground. go to public golf. There's all people there interested in golf. A percentage of them are going to be open to the product that you're selling. You just need to go and sell it to them. I know. I've just plugged. Uh, there should be a there should be a diverse range of yeah. golf because society is diverse. Right. If you cater to one at the exclusion of the other, then you are limiting the success that you could potentially okay. have. I mean, I I'm, I don't for a second of anything at all against these new championship developments that are getting thrown up left, right, and centre, and these six, seven and a half thousand yard courses that are designed you know with no membership model in mind that just seem to be purely tourism endeavors i don't have a problem with that in the slightest people those courses in scotland they're packed all the time that tells me that yeah, there's a place for them that right. they're doing well but when another one opens it's still packed so we are catering to that demand private members clubs absolutely they are right in the engine room of the game but the heartbeat the absolute lifeblood of the sport is public golf and I will maintain that until the day I die. You were in lockstep with that log. You were going to say something. Um, I, I just wanted, I've already plugged Camaray uh, Golf Club in this uh, podcast. I haven't mentioned the New South Wales Women's Open at Dubbo, so I don't know why you're doing <laughs> plugs for various things. Yeah. I, I just want to mention, uh, give a, um, a quick credit to Leighton Gould, the um, general manager at Camaray, um, who recently said to me, it, like, it just just laid that out instinctively. I, I, I don't know if like, he's like, you think he's a this fan? stuff or studies this Does stuff. Does he listen or to you? Is he reading your material? Do you think that's I what's happening? I don't know. But, Is he tuning you? But instinctively, he, he said, oh, there's a role for Camaray in golf, and that is to be a feeder. And I feel like I can bring people into golf. They can get a soft introduction to it here. But this isn't the place for them to keep playing. And, and I feel like I can introduce other golf clubs to these people who golf catches with. Like that, what a refreshing attitude! Yeah, just a staggering thing. Like that's that was his actual words, and I just it's something that resonated with me uh, for days afterwards. It, he's like, I feel like I can introduce these people to other golf clubs in the area. Be the corn ferry tour and the yeah. Epson tour because it, it's golf like because we're not right. They're, this, they're gonna this is they're, it. exactly. It's like Camaray isn't the right club for them long term. Like it's it's going to be a transitional thing for them. There's almost like this fear that some people have of being, you know. A feeder. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. the same with the DP World Tour. People get very protective when you say, don't call it a feeder circuit. I know that Keith Pelly, if he was here, would be screaming at me, we're not a feeder circuit. You know, you are, and that's fine. That's have totally, been, have been for a very long time. Utterly fine. 
it's yeah. been a long time. Are you successful? Been... Are you pro- are you providing the opportunities that you exist to provide? Yes. Then it doesn't matter what people see you as or what you know you're framed as or yeah. defined as. You are successful. That's all that matters. That's another lazy argument. Oh, in the eighties and nineties, yeah, the, the European Tour did this and that and had all these big tournaments, and these people just rolled over to the PGA Tour. Take all of those people out into the marketplace and ask them to sell the sponsorships required to build a European tour that looked like it did back in the 80s and 90s, and best of luck, because you are not competing with living the PGA Tour in any realistic world. It cannot happen. I I, I just want to finish that thought with Leighton and Cameron. Oh, sorry. Um, One other other thing which he said and, and should be acknowledged is that once you're deep into golf and you may be a member at some club up the road from Camaray or like that's half an hour drive away from Camaray. If you live in that area, Camaray is still a fantastic yeah. second membership yeah. where it's like, oh, I've got no, I've got an hour or so after work. I'm going to go play quick nine holes at Camaray. Yeah. I've got an hour before work. I'm going to go play quick nine holes at Camaray. It, that that's um, that's something that needs to be acknowledged as well. It's it's the Long Island. It's in a the price model in Melbourne. Yeah. Long Island is closer to the CBD. Yeah, a lot yeah. of those members are city based. They can go to Long Island and as you yeah, well, camera is going to be a lot cheaper than Long yeah, Island. Of course, and thing, but that, yeah, that idea that uh, that you know second membership for a place for a quick hit and a lot of fun. It it actually it just really fits a number of holes in golf, and I'm so glad that that piece of land is going to have a future in golf in yes, Sydney. Right. I think it's one of it, if you draw circles around uh, the CBD, I think it's actually closer to the CBD than uh, Moore Park, oh, which right. you would acknowledge as yeah. you'd think is probably the closer to CBD. But Camaray is actually closer. Um, Just a as, bridge as, as a which gives you the illusion. It's a perfect yeah. hazard, isn't it? Yeah. The but, architect has deceived you there <laughs> by putting that hazard there. He makes it look further than it is. But really interestingly, it's on uh, a piece of um, geography there in Sydney where a lot of people. Go past it commuting. Mm. Yes, very much. So, well, the, the 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 freeway to the Harbour Bridge goes right past, doesn't it? Anybody who drives on the Harbour Bridge from that side goes past Cameron. And every single person who's coming from the uh, like the the ocean side of the northern suburbs of Sydney. Yeah, yeah indeed. Uh, last thing, well, uh, uh, it it often sounds, and we get accused on this podcast, and it happens to John Hogan. I'm sure it happens to you, and I know it happens to me. Get accused of talking the game down because all we seem to do is point out these problems with the game. Are we talking the game down? Do you still like golf or are you a golf hater? Are we golf haters? What's the truth about uh, pointing out the issues with the game? Imagine we didn't point out yeah. the issues. How, how, how terrible would that be? And I think it's important that we do. And anyone who misconstrues that, that, that's unfortunate. But it comes from a place of passion and it comes from a place of wanting the absolute best for the game. Not for me, you know, for, for my daughter and her children and their children. It's, it's about maintaining and improving on an incredible product that we have. Like I said, I'm, I'm beyond proud that I come from the country that invented the game and gave it to the world. I want to make sure that we never get complacent. We just go, well, you know, that's that's good enough. I think it it was, it's funny, now that I think on it, it's a film that I really like called Whiplash. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's about a, a young lad who goes to a music school in, um, in New York, wants to become a drummer, wants to become the next buddy guy or whoever. And uh, he comes up against this belligerent, I think it's J.K. Simmons, comes up against this belligerent teacher who uses very old school methods and is aggressive and hostile and belittling to, to all his students and basically grinds them into submission. And his method is that, you know, well, if I don't weed out the the people who aren't interested and who aren't committed and who don't have the best interest of music at heart, then 
they'll never find the next bloody guy. And what he said in the, the film, bear in mind it's fiction, but he said something that stuck with me forever, and that is that the most damaging two words in the English language are good job. I think that's what he said, or was it well done? But it was tantamount to that. It's like just settling for yeah. good enough. And I will never, ever, ever accept for good enough for this game. So yeah, I will point out the, the flaws in it. Do I like golf? Do I still like golf? Of course I do. Do I like tour golf? Different matter. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm starting to like it less and less. I'm starting to become more disenfranchised, certainly with certain elements of it. I can't relate to it anymore. I can't relate to the, the numbers that they're hitting. I can't relate to the numbers that they're playing for. And that saddens me. And that's been a recent development. You know, I've worked in the game, as I say, for 20 years and I'm not saying I could relate to the money Tiger Woods was making or the, the shots he was hitting 20 years ago. But something has just spiraled way, way out of step now. The Travelers Championship, $20 million. Do do me a favour. So do I I like tour golf? Not as much as I did. Um, I'm certainly not as entertained by it as I was. But I love this sport to death. And I will never, ever settle for it being just good. And importantly, a part of that, you mentioned that you've got a daughter. There's a whole other discussion, and we have it often here, about mm-hmm. the gender politics of golf and whatnot. But, you know, as a dad of a daughter, you want her to have the opportunity to enjoy golf should she want to. It doesn't mean you're going to force her to play the game, but it should be available to her oh, God, should no. she want to, as it would for a son or a nephew or those sorts of things. And that's kind of what we're One, trying to do. 100%. Yeah. 100%. Uh, you're quite right. I'm not going to force her to do anything. You know, me and my wife are pretty clear on that. She'll have the opportunity to try anything that she wants. You know, we'll, 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 that's that's our job, isn't it, as the parents, to, to provide that opportunity. So if she shows an interest in golf, like she's shown in dancing and swimming and, you know, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, she wanted to see that in the cinema, so we took her. We'll, 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 we'll provide her all the opportunities that she wants, and if she likes golf, great. That's that's fantastic. If it's not for her, it's not for her. But making sure the opportunity is there is... is because the irony, of course, Michael, is if she does like golf and takes to it, it's not going to be too long before she beats you and say, now you've got this, oh, do I really want to introduce her to the game and endure that shame and embarrassment <laughs> the day that your child be beats you? Proud, proudest day of your life, I think. Of course. Well, it's, it just, it's, it's, it's just a, another thing that she'll... Uh, <laughs> she'll be better at than you, that's right, she's... yes. <laughs> exactly. Just add it Indeed. to the line. Mark, have you got anything before we close and let Michael go? No, look, I think this episode could best be described as good enough. <laughs> We've got a motto. Ouch. The motto here is good, good is that That'll do. Yeah. <laughs> Michael, it's- I'm actually, it's funny. I've now just stalled on the on what the line is. Is it good enough? It's stuck it with well you forever. Good job. It's one <laughs> it's of the three. It's, it's stuck with me forever. I mean, Change your life. Stuck with you me. with Perkins paste as opposed to super glue by the sound of it. Fantastic. <laughs> I'm going to have links in the show notes to the story you wrote about golf, which was fantastic, which I've pretty much gone through line by line with us today, which is beautiful. You also did a YouTube video, which is great for the visual, so people get to see some of the colour and light and movement and action that you're talking about in that story. It's been great of you to join us. Where can people find you? And give your Bunkered podcast a plug because it's one of the better magazine ones, I think, on a weekly basis. That's that's very kind of you. Yes, the Bunkered podcast out from all podcast providers every week. Uh, There'll be a new one this week with a very special guest who I'm recording with tomorrow, a Ryder Cup winning captain. So... Is I was about to say. I was about to <laughs> say. Sort of it down a little bit. Yeah. Narrow that down now. <laughs> yeah, so that, that latest episode will be out this week. Uh, we're on at Bunkered Online on Twitter, Facebook, Bunkered Golf Online on Instagram, just to be awkward. Bunkered.co.uk is our website, and I am at M McEwen Golf if you're so inclined on. Links in the show notes, and Michael is on one of X. them. X. 
Yeah, on X, that's right. Yeah, it's not Twitter anymore. On X, X. yeah. Well, are we still calling it tweets? <laughs> you know, or do you tweet somebody? Do you yeah. X somebody? I oh, don't who know. Knows. Who knows? Yes. And Michael is one of the better golf columnists <laughs> going around too. It's always worth <laughs> reading his opinion pieces. I'm kind of in that zone these days. I like to read opinion pieces. And you as a, well, you agree with me. So clearly, you must be getting something right most of the time. We agree on the things. <laughs> I must be right. right. Which is fabulous. Good of you to uh, join us today, Michael. It's been fantastic, Logue. Good to have you along as always. Thank you, Rod. Checks in the mail from Cameroon, no Thank doubt. And Elliot, Rod. Sorry, oh, thank you, Roddy. Do not start. I should have cut that out. I don't know why. Karen Harding last week. That's it from us here on episode 155. We'll be back to do it all again next week here on the Good Good Golf Podcast.